Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Carolyn Glick Mideast News Hour. I'm here with my co-host, Gadi Taub. Hi, Gadi. Hi, from Tel Aviv. Hi, and so we're, uh, guess what? Uh, it looks like all of our long discussions about Israel's political uh, crisis that's been going on for more than two years may be coming to a close, except now we're going to be getting into a governance crisis because it looks like the way that it's going to come to the close is that we're going to have the most radical left-wing government we've ever seen. What do you think of that, Gadi? I think, you know, the, the, I, I, the downward turn, the downward turn began while counting the votes in America, or maybe while a virus leaked from a lab in China. It was like a domino and things fell all over here. And I didn't dream that what happened in America would happen here, that the radical fringe would somehow be able to, how do you say in English, lemanef? It's a good word. Uh, huh? To leverage. To leverage its, its, uh, its unique position in order to impose on the mainstream an opinion that clearly the mainstream rejects. In Israel, we have a very clear right-wing majority and 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 now we're going to have a left a radical left-wing government it's the first post-zionist coalition since israel has been founded i agree and you know just to bring our our viewers and our listeners up to speed um what we're talking about here is a coalition that's being formed uh by left and very very left uh parties and along with an islamist party that's aligned with the muslim brotherhood and they're being led uh, by three breakaway, ostensibly right-wing parties, two of which were really pretty right until, what, like the day before yesterday, right? Yeah. When they, yeah, the day before yesterday, when, when they just decided that they were just about done with ideology. Uh, one of them, Matan Kahana from the Yamina party, which means right word or to the right, uh, just said, now is the time to put ideology on hold. Right, because values, you know, there's no reason to hold on to those values when they can just take a vacation and you can give it, you can adopt other ones like on a vacation. Gee, I think I'll be a leftist for the next two weeks while I'm in, you know, Mexico, right? The, the, that's, also, that's also a kind of mistake that's often imported from the United States, right? Because in America, there's also a strand in politics where uh, where 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 supposedly pragmatism replaces ideology. We're not about opinions. We'll just solve problems. And boom, the minute they did it, uh, the, the, the uh, riots broke out with Israeli Arabs and demonstrated to us very clear, and then the rockets from Hamas, and demonstrated to us clearly that this idea that you can, oh, let's put all foreign policy on hold, as if, you know, the, the, the Iranian uh, countdown to a nuclear bomb will, will, will somehow pause for Mr. Naftali Bennett and others to, to solve problems. And the funny thing is that that he's been running with this because, was it a year ago, he wrote a completely idiotic book called <laughs> How to Fight a Pandemic. There's no book that aged worse than Naftali Bennett's book. He, had some, <laughs> he, he, he suggested we follow the German model because Netanyahu doesn't know what he's doing and this vaccine. And thing. Angela Merkel does. And, and, then, and then it turned out Germany is like in the worst mess. So after that, Naftali Bennett says, we're all about reconstructing the economy. And what do you know? The economy bounced back in Israel like it did nowhere else because we have the vaccine and everything. And now they're left with nothing. So what did he do in his speech? It was just astounding because he gave a speech and he just completely adopted the whole 
left-wing narrative about Netanyahu's alleged failure and how everything is terrible and Netanyahu is driving a wedge between the sectors of our society. And he just, he just everything that came out of his mouth was just leftist propaganda. And this guy, before the election, said clearly, we are uh, an idealistic right-wing party and we will never sit in a, 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 any even sentence. We have values. Coalition. Yes. We, we have, have values. But what it's like Groucho Marx's own old <laughs> yes. line, you know, I got values and, and you know, if you don't like them, I'll get new ones. You know what I mean? So it, it's the same concept. And, and it reminds me really, I, I don't know why, but it was so stunning to me. Uh, in 1997, um, Princess Diana was killed in a car accident in, in Paris. And this was a major story in Israel for no apparent reason, except that she was Princess Di and she died in a car crash and everybody cared because she was Princess Di and she just died. Um, and the Israeli media were, were all over this story. Like it was this huge story in the news in Israel for, for days. And they were getting ready to go to the funeral with Elton John and everything like that. And then um, Hezbollah uh, killed... Uh, a large number of Israeli naval commandos in in Lebanon with a roadside bomb, which was actually sort of the prototype of the IEDs that were used by Iran's other militias in Iraq to kill thousands of U.S. forces uh, in the Iraq war. Um, and that IED attack was a shock to Israelis. And you could see, I, I still remember it. I was working for the prime minister at the time, Netanyahu, in his first uh, tenure. And I remember I ran into the chief of staff in, in, from, the, from the IDF, Amnon Shachak, in the, in the hallway of, uh, of the prime minister's office. The day it happened. And I said to him, gee, you know, everybody was so excited that we were finally able to care about something like Princess Di. You know, and it's like, this whole thing just took us back to the fact that no, uh, in Israel, reality never takes a vacation. You know, you can't get all excited about somebody else's psychodrama. You're just in your own, you're just in the real world and you're in the real world all the time and you can never get away from it. You know, even if you want to change your values or just take a vacation, a brief one, you know, so that you can have a, you can have a government that's all about we, we're going to bring the we back. So just to be clear, because maybe our, our viewers aren't uh, watching the implosion of all values and, and moral decency in Israeli politics, at least among some politicians. Um, the thing is, is that like, as I was saying, you, we have these parties that claim to be right wing and they're forming the most uh, radical coalition government we've ever seen in Israel. And they're doing it ostensibly under the banner of a unity government, except that what are they doing? In forming this government, they're boycotting the, the largest party in Israel, uh, Likud, and all of the uh, ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel. Um, and they're doing it deliberately. This and um, and the and both from the perspective of uh, Israel's national security. And from the perspective of Israel's Jewish character, um, everything that defines Israel and everything that secures Israel and our place in the region um, and in the world is really now being called into question. And I think before we get into the political stuff, which I know is most interesting because it's the wranglings of indecent people, uh, and that's always important so that we understand what the implications are, I think you know it might be reasonable to start our discussion today 
in just discussing, since most of our viewers aren't in Israel, what this really means for Israel strategically, and then maybe get into a little bit of what it means for Israel Jewishly, uh, and then uh, and then get into the nitty gritty more of the politics. What do you think? Sure. Um, shall, shall we start with geopolitics and and um, and what can happen vis-a-vis -vis a hostile administration in in the U.S. Sure. So I think, you know, I wrote an article about it uh, in Israel Ayom two days ago. Um, and and basically, if you just look at it from, I mean, from the perspective of the Biden administration, and Tom Friedman actually said this, I think yesterday, that this is the Israeli translation of the Biden administration. It's as if the Biden administration just had an Israeli doppelganger, and that was Naftali Bennett and all of his cronies and, and Yair Lapid. And they're they're going to be running the Israeli branch of the Biden administration, and the implications for that first and foremost, um, well, just to make clear why this why what I'm, why what we're about to discuss is going to happen in Israel, the decision making body for national security issues is called the Security Cabinet, and it's comprised of some key members of the government. First of all, since we're a coalition. Uh, government, all of our governments are coalitions of many parties. The head of each party that's a member to the coalition is a member of the National Security Cabinet. And in addition to them, you know, if the if the defense minister isn't a head of a party, then he is uh, a member anyway. And the same with the justice minister. So those two and the foreign minister. So those three ministers, if they're not the heads of coalition partners, they're in, and if they are, then they're in because they're the heads of uh, coalition parties. And uh, otherwise, just every single leader of a coalition party is in the National Security Cabinet. And so what that means is that the uh, uh, the Security Cabinet of the incoming government, Naftali Bennett, who's ostensibly a, a right-winger, but basically is an Israeli never-Trumper um, now, meaning he's just become an agent of the left, um, he... Is, says, well, I'm going to be prime minister, so it's all on me, except that's not true. He doesn't have decision-making uh, powers. It's from the National Security Cabinet, and that's going to be dominated. There's going to be a, ma a very large majority to the left, the radical left, and I would assume from Mansour Abbas, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood Party, that's going to be a partner in this coalition. So that's the National Security Cabinet. And uh, the implications are raft. I mean, we can start with Iran. You wanna, you wanna take a go at it? Yeah, yeah. Because we, uh, Mike Duran and I uh, wrote a, a piece for Arts uh, this week about uh, about the fact that Israelis are not waking up the, to what the Biden administration is up to, and 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 what the Biden administration is up to is perpetuating the lie that the JCPOA is somehow a means to stop Iran. Or slow Iran on its race. That it's a non-proliferation agreement. Yeah, which which it clearly isn't, because right. it, it's it's a, it, what we've learned since 2015 when it was put in place was that this this was covered up by strict lies. And if you look at what say Obama himself said about it in unguarded moments, he said that some of the facilities mm -hmm. there are clearly not for a peaceful nuclear program. So this has been a cover-up that supposedly blocked all paths that Iraq, Iran had to, to the bomb, but actually not only opened the path, but also 
created a situation in which at the end of the agreement, which is just nine years away, Iran's nuclear program with all the military capabilities that they have been left free to develop under the radar would just become not only legitimized but sanctified by the international community through the Security Council. So, so now the Biden administration is talking about longer and stronger and all that, but this is again a cover-up because they, they admit themselves that they're going to go back to the original JCPOA and then maybe they'll improve it. What do they mean improve it? At once you gave Iran all it wanted it has abs and, and freed it from all the sanction, it has absolutely no incentive to put any sh new shackles on its own hands. It will never happen, let alone the fact that, that, that they are just, it's just, it's embarrassing to see because they're just humiliating the Biden administration while they're shooting at American, American forces in Iraq. And they're, and, and it's like, I don't know if you have that in English, but in Israel, in his, in Hebrew, we say uh, that when, when someone spits on your head, you don't say it's raining. Well, they keep saying it's raining and every, and the whole world is watching. And so they've become, they're becoming more and more audacious. Now, now the key element that we did not treat at length in our article, but I think should be elaborated here as well as in the, the, the Hebrew press, is that the Biden administration has long fingers into Israel's security establishment. Yeah. They, they have active agents there promoting the narrative. So when Ben Rhodes is talking about weaving the narrative back in Washington, they have means and mouthpieces here through Dan Shapiro is still here and all this and, and there are think tanks and all this who they they they, they softly hug uh, select members of the Israeli security establishment who are whose job is to sedate Israel and and stop us from seeing what is taking place and now Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett they, who are who are going to be the twin heads of this government are part and part, they, they, their security views, they don't have independent security views. They eat from the hands of these people who are mouthpieces of Biden's administration. So right. the difficult thing Israel has to do now, America is our strategic partner, but we have to tell him, as Netanyahu clearly and boldly did, there is a limit to which Israel would not agree, acquiesce to, and this JCPOA is, we will not... We will not respect it. We we will have no one like Netanyahu to do this. So while we're we're bickering about uh, about coalitions and 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 who will get which portfolio, we are we are going to lose the 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 race to Iranian hegemony in the region. So it's 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 frightening. It is terrifying, and it is and it is a direct consequence of what's happening right now. You're absolutely right. You know, one of the reasons that I've long called for, long called for Israel to end our uh, uh, end our our practice of of receiving uh, military uh, aid from the United States is precisely because of the long arms that you were describing inside of the Israeli security establishment, and just you know to to give our viewers a sense of what we're talking about because. Um, you know, in a way, when you say things like that, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's not. Uh, in 2014, when uh, John Kerry and Martin Indyk were trying to push Israel to agree to a peace deal with the Palestinians that was going to render Israel indefensible in terms of both our our eastern uh, our, our eastern border with the Jordan Valley and also in terms of the uh, land that we were going to uh, maintain control of 
in in the interior of Judea and Samaria. Uh, what uh, what Martin Indyk did was he put together and paid a team of retired Israeli generals to serve as mouthpieces for him. So we had, uh, and they still work for them, and uh, they and uh, they still receive money from American donors who also support Martin Indyk and the Brookings Institute. And um, and so when we when we're talking about something like this, I mean, this is already this has already been this has already happened that, you know, the 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 uh, the use of uh, retired Israeli generals by by hostile American administrations uh, has already been done right out in the open. And so, you know, this is not this is not conjecture. This is not, you know, the suspicious uh uh, whatever uh, broodings of uh, two angry right wingers who are seeing that our government is being stolen out from under us by usurpers. Um, this is just a fact, and these people will be predominant in the Lapid Bennett government. Um, and so that's that's one area where uh, you know that's obviously the largest area uh, that we have to be alarmed by. Um, there are other areas that we have to be alarmed by as well because. When the collapse of Israel on holding the line on Iran is going to lead directly to the collapse of the Abraham Accords, right? Because the Abraham Accords themselves are, are predicated on the faith that the Sunni Gulf states that are equally threatened by Iran, and from their perspective, from its uh, hegemonic designs on the region, just as from our perspective, it's from the uh, nuclear program, as well as the hegemony. Um, and, and so... The, you know, the Abraham Accords are sort of the face of an operational alliance that Netanyahu struck with the UAE and the Saudis and the Egyptians uh, in the face of the Obama administration's attempt or, or initial steps towards realigning the United States away from all of us and towards the Muslim Brotherhood and Iran. So um, and, and it was based on their faith, their reasonable faith in Israel under Netanyahu that we were going to do whatever it took in order to uh, push back and in order to continue to defend ourselves against Iran on the one hand and the Muslim Brotherhood on the other hand. Um, and here, what they're going to see with this incoming government is an Israel that is collapsing on Iran and also collapsing on the Muslim Brotherhood. And as a result, there, you know, there's probably it, it. It'll just be dead in the water. They'll no longer have any strategic significance, which, by the way, is precisely the goal of the Biden administration, which is why they never call them the Abraham Accords, which is, of course, a very powerful name that, as I think we discussed last week, you know, uh, reinstates the the sense of uh, brotherhood between Jews and Arabs and and Muslims as as the children of Abraham. And uh, so they've they've been denuding it of its uh, of its emotional and its sort of philosophical meaning. And now uh, uh, by uh, having an appliant uh, and compliant Israeli government that follows the lead of the Biden administration, they're also going to denude those accords of any strategic impact or importance. And, and as a result, likely going to end them altogether. Um, and I, maybe yeah. maybe we should. Uh, you know, because I, I speak with people about this, and they say, "Oh, come on! If Iran will have the bomb, it would not it would not use it on Israel." They say they will use it; they would not use it in Israel. And this is a misstatement of what the problem is, because I don't think Iran is going to use nuclear weapons against Israel. That that would be suicidal. But it will have a 
it will have a nuclear umbrella for its conventional plans. And what and what is coming to pass now is look, Iraq, Iraq is on the verge of collapsing because now that that America has turned its back on Iraq and and is smiling. On, on Iran, the Iranian proxies in Iraq are going to, one way or another, are going to overtake that country. And then look what we have. We have Iraq. We have the flimsy, unstable Hashemite kingdom in the middle, which is very small, very poor. We have Syria that has already collapsed and is infested with Iranian forces. And we have Lebanon. And then we have Turkey with the Muslim Brotherhood again. So what kind of Middle East is Israel going to be in? Because this is how don't they forget, work. And don't forget Egypt, right? I mean, yeah. Egypt already had one, one Muslim Brotherhood government. And, you know, the idea that, that Sisi and the generals are going to be able to hold the line uh, if, you know, Saudi Arabia and the UAE start coming under Iran's sway because they don't have any other option because of the American betrayal and because of Israel's, you know, uh, abandonment of the fight uh, with this government, then you're going to see some significant threats as well to Egypt, which means also obviously shipping in the Suez Canal. So, yeah, I think, you know, you're, you're talking about pacification of the Sunnis at best. And, and, um, and and yeah, these are going to have real world implications. You know, I would far be it for me to uh, discount the possibility of Iran uh, using nuclear weapons against Israel. They've certainly pledged to, and I and I believe that the Iranians should be taken at their word, at least from a strategic perspective. And I think that it's a uh, it's a uh, malpractice, it's criminal malpractice uh, not to, and to believe instead the nonsense being spewed by the likes of you know, Tony Blinken and uh, Joe Biden about longer and stronger deals that will never happen. Um, so I think, you know, we're we're walking into it's not even really a trap because, you know, we're we're walking into to a box that is has warning lights all over it saying do not enter, do not enter. And we're walking in. And so, you know, I think that this is going to be a real a real problem. And, you know, how do we, how do we stand up to this? You know, it, it, that's going to be the challenge of our times, but it's a, it'll be an uphill battle because it's very, very difficult as a practical matter to get anywhere uh, when you don't have any power. And, um, you know, it may be as well that the internal inconsistencies or contradictions of this government that's uh, about to be formed will be such that it'll fall. There are other aspects to it that may happen as well, which is that, I mean, we, I, I'm getting ahead of us. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But the other aspect of it that I wanted to discuss really was the Muslim Brotherhood and specifically Hamas, because, you know, we just finished an 11 day war. We were forced to accept a ceasefire by the Americans. Um, and I, and I think here, you know, when we're looking at, we, we discussed it last week about how all of the claims of reconstruction is really just rearming Hamas and how Hadi Amar, the, uh, assistant, uh, secretary of state for Israel and the Palestinians, uh, wants Israel to drop all limitations on imports into Gaza and basically just let Hamas, you know, have its way in terms of uh, weapons development, all, of course, under the uh, under the headline of humanitarian aid. And so when we look at that, we have to realize that this government, I mean, it, the, the, the dominance of far left wing power uh, parties in this government uh, renders it effectively impossible to imagine that Israel is going to even try 
to defy international pressure to open up Gaza. And that is going to transform Gaza itself into a much more significant strategic threat to Israel. Um, and and so that, you know, obviously is going to be a nightmare. And we haven't even begun to discuss Lebanon, which already is a, a threat uh, three or four times greater than the one posed by Hamas and its missiles and rockets and mortars from Gaza, uh, just in terms of its firepower that's uh, being trained on Israel, you know, with over 150,000 missiles being trained on Israel and attack drones and all sorts of other advanced weapon capabilities, intelligence capabilities, signals capabilities um, that... Uh, and and forces, of course, that are battle hardened after uh, fighting in Syria and Iraq for the past decade. And and probably this is the model that that Iran is going to follow with its Shiite proxies. So so that Israel has been uh, reportedly uh, has been uh, harassing Iranian forces in Syria and and preventing them from entrenching in Syria as they had in Lebanon, where they built this uh, this huge arsenal you mentioned of rockets. But if Iran has its way, there will be, and if the Biden administration manages to stop us from, from attacking in Syria, then we will have another Hezbollah in Syria. And imagine if Iraq, if Iraq falls to the Sunnis, to the Shiites, then, then, then uh, Jordan is going to be hanging by a thread. And if well, Jordan, Jordan will be pacified. Jordan's not going to put up a fight. But but Jordan but but if it, it does, there 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 may be a a, a new um, a bridgehead for Shiite militias inside inside uh, uh, Jordan. So we so we're going to have uh, Lebanon, which is the greatest threat now, duplicated again in Syria and then further south in. Uh, in Jordan. And then we have on the south border, we have the Muslim Brotherhoods and, and Hamas, which are also financed by Qatar and, uh, and, and Iran's Shiites. And, and then there's a the danger that, 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 the, uh, that Egypt will also fall to the Muslim Brotherhood. So, right. So this is, this is like a doomsday scenario. And again, you know, the thing that had been standing against all of this was Netanyahu. And, and the understanding of the Arabs that they could trust Israel and the understanding of the Biden administration that it wasn't going to have a carte blanche to do whatever it wants in the Middle East. And now it will. And, you know, so this is um, th this is just these are the strategic to the strategic implications of what uh, is happening now in Israel politically. And so, like I said, you know, we can care as much as we want to about, you know, Harry and Meghan, but that's not going to take us out of reality. Right. I mean, it just. It's just not going to happen. We this is this is a this is where we are, and this is where we've always been because this is our this is our this is our lovely neighborhood. So, but Caroline, before we move to another subject, maybe you can say two words about what you think the Biden administration thinks it's doing, because we've we've elaborated what the actual implications is. But how do those people justify this to themselves? I don't think that they're thinking in that way. I mean, when when you look at what the Biden administration is saying about foreign policy, it's basically just resonating what they're saying in their woke domestic policy. And so the idea is that and this was, you know, very similar, very similar, just a radicalized version of what we saw with Obama, that there is no foreign policy for this for this uh, administration. It's all domestic policies, all woke 
It's all woke policy. So if in, in the United States, the translation of, of woke, wokeism is to say that everything about the United States is, is inherently evil, that America was born in sin of uh, slavery, that white people are responsible for everything and they have to prove that they're not white supremacists by essentially uh, uh, denying themselves civil rights to equal opportunity in order to give extraordinary opportunities to m minorities uh, uh, that are from favored minorities. Of course, not all minorities, just the favored one, definitely not Asians. Um, you know, to say that meritocracy which was the backbone of American exceptionalism and, and economic power is now evil. And that what's much more important is equity, which means giving preferential treatment to people on the basis of their color of their skin, their, their, uh, their sexual, uh, preferences and a whole host of other things that, you know, would have seemed absurd just a few years ago. Um, so that's how it's translated in the United States. There's no real rational thought behind it. I mean, what do they think is going to happen to the U.S. economy, right, with this sort of stock stakeholder capitalism where the profit isn't supposed to be the central motivating force behind uh, commercial uh, behavior? You know, if it isn't, then what is? I mean, how are you going to make any money? You know, how are you going to generate growth in the economy if what you're saying is that more important than actually bringing profits to your shareholders is uh, is having a uh, is having a vice president for equity and transgender rights? You know, and and that's really what's happening in all of these major corporations today. And so you're 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 looking at you're looking at a transformation of the values of American society being dictated from above, from Washington and from a lot of the elite uh, uh, institutions in the United States. Uh, and and it is what, uh, what Obama said. He said, we're four days away from fundamentally transforming America. That's what he said before he went to Washington. And now we see that America is being fundamentally transformed before our eyes. Um, and here in, in the Middle East and, and really worldwide, you know that kind of uh, that kind of wokeism is being translated into well, if America is bad, then obviously all of America's allies are bad. And you know the Iranians uh, viewed Israel as the little Satan to America's great Satan. They saw Israel and, and America as two sides of the same coin of democracy and of and of uh, of a true form of of nationalism that's based on values and shared history. Um, and uh, and and that that foam that fo that posed a philosophical and as a result an existential threat to the concept of imperialism generally and Islamic imperialism specifically. So that their concept of Israel and the United States as two sides of the same court, uh, same coin, was basically apt. And the Americans, as we're seeing with people like Rashida Tlaib and AOC and just the squad in general and progressives of all shapes and forms from, you know, Harvard to Hollywood, um, they also, the same people who are speaking out against systemic racism in the United States and getting behind the, you know, the, the historically insane 1619 project that claims that America was born in sin and is inherently evil. Um, they're also the ones leading the charge against Israel and saying that Israel is an inherently racist, evil country that has no right to exist 
so long as it remains a Jewish state. Yeah, and then the front page of the New York Times with 69 dead children. I tweeted something about it, but my Twitter is so so overwhelmed with my endless Hebrew tweets that I that I'm guessing uh, English speakers don't don't get to it. But I suggest I I I, I said it was a very wise presentation to put all these kids on the front page that they chose the victims of a war that Israel had because had they chosen the children victims of the war in Afghanistan that America killed they would have needed the whole edition because it was something like 800 children so there was something absolutely disgusting in in that you think that you you hold a higher moral ground when you blame the when you when you um flagellate yourself for the sins of others supposedly well you are the conscience of another nation and when clearly they have been their their coverage of this has been at the level of you know john oliver's stupidity in which in in which counting bodies is somehow supposed to um to to determine who who is right you know by this calculation there were more germans than americans killed in world war ii so by this there logic, were more germans than is than jews killed i mean there were seven million germans killed in world war ii so obviously so, the germans you know, had the higher moral were the victim. ground the nazis well, they, yeah. they were the victims they were the victims and the jews were the aggressors because only six million jews were killed it's, so it, i mean it, it's the same kind of nonsense but it's not only that i think in a way you're being a little bit unfair to the United States and Afghanistan and the children that were killed there because the New York Times, I'm certain, uh, would be happy to put out an addition with 800 uh, children and say that the United States is a murderous country. I mean, I think that they're, that's yeah. the whole point, that their willingness to indict Israel is part and parcel of their anti-Americanism. And I mean, that that's that's the key here, which is why, you know, um, people who love the United States are much more are much more likely to also love Israel. I mean, the the, the Iranians, uh, you know, uh, they tapped into something true when they when they saw the United States and Israel as the two largest threats to their uh, world imperialist uh, designs and. Um, so and I think that the people, the progressives, the communists, the Islamists, whoever they are, who hate Israel and hate the United States, uh, are very much of the opinion that the that the Iranians are correct. So I, I think you know that that um, I mean that that's just that's just what I think. Anyway, I lost my train. <laughs> yeah. No. This. This. Uh, this trend that's that that I, I, for me is personified in the in edward said that that it, it, this is a hangover from a, a, a sense of security that the united states one once had that now all it had to do it was so strong and so triumphant that it could now afford to only indulge in its guilt feelings and this is this is obama people it's it's amazing to me that people don't that, that this was an anti-American president, and that you could see that. I've said this once, and I think in our first show, in in his speech at the convention, what unites Americans? He said every every one of us was once in a group, once oppressed when they arrived right. here. So oppressed by who? Oppressed by right. America. So you listen right. to this speech. And, and what he basically says is that we have to get rid of this terrible evil. What's the evil? America. Amazing. Well, that's the same thing. I mean, again, that's why 
people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the squad in Congress, and again, all of their friends in academia, all of their friends in these uh, NGOs that hate and hate the United States, that that think that the United States was born in sin. I mean, again, you know, and and in a way, it it, it is echoed by the Biden administration in in a in a sick sort of way, um, and. I thought emblematic of this was uh, when Kamala Harris uh, posted a picture of herself uh, smiling uh, over on Memorial Day weekend and said, have a great weekend. She is the vice president of the United States. And this was her message to the American people uh, on Memorial Day. It wasn't, you know, we remember our fallen heroes on this day, you know, uh, any, you know, the most boilerplate kitsch, you know, would have been preferable to that because here she just was disregarding the whole thing. And, and the fact that, you know, she didn't have one person in her office who might've, you know, intervened and said, gee, you know, Madam Vice President, uh, there are things other than shopping that people do on Memorial Day weekend. Some of them actually go to military cemeteries and pay their respect to Americans. Maybe we should think about, you know, changing the picture from you to, you know, uh, uh, Arlington Cemetery. Maybe I mean, just think about it. Uh, just suggesting, but uh, you get the, the you get the sense that nobody was there to do that because that's not the nature of this party. And I think you know maybe we should uh, scale back come back closer to home because what we've just done is scared the bejesus out of all of our listeners and our, and our viewers, right. Uh, in explaining the implications of what's happening. So let's just talk a little bit maybe about all of these wonderful people. And, you know, we can play out some scenarios of what, you know, uh, is likely to happen in the next week and in the next couple of months. Uh, I, I thought and, we were going know. to devote the last part of the show to princess Di. But Not she today. died uh, in 1997. No what a shame. But, you know, Harry and Meghan, you know, they're... they're oh, they're the topic I, for you. I understand that Harry is now on a jihad against free speech and the First Amendment as a new, as a new resident in the United States. He thinks this whole constitution thing is way overblown. <coughs> but no, let, having, having made that important segue to that important person, you know, in all of our lives... Um, yeah, so let's talk about that. Let's talk a little bit. Well, okay, actually, can I just, there was one more thing that I wanted to put into the issues of this sure. horrible government that's coming in, which is uh, their impact on Israel's Judaism. You know, we had a really interesting uh, bill put forward by one of the leaders of the Meretz Party, which is a post-Jewish, post-Zionist party that's going to be a member of the coalition, Tamar Zonberg. And what she said was that uh, she wanted to pass a law criminalizing, um, what would you call it? You know, we have these these tefillin, tefillactories there. Um, I think uh, that, I think the word it's the word I I always struggle with it, pronouncing, but I can recognize in print. It's proselytizing, proselytizing. Yeah, proselytizing. She, but you're not allowed to do any missionizing to Jews, Jewish people. Uh, in Israel, so you're not allowed to. I, do think, any I think it referred to outreach. underage, right? You're not. You you cannot oh, yes. preach Judaism it's to underage people. The <laughs> solicitation to religious yeah. ritual, as if it's prostitution, you know, or drug use. Here, kid, you know, have some crack, you get three months. Here, kid, 
Would you like to pray? Here, you know, kid, you want you some tefillin? I have a really yeah, you good want to stuff. put on some tefillin? I have the you want good to lay stuff. Some yeah, I got I, it. It was it was blessed by the Rebbe. <laughs> you know, before they all get put in jail for a minimum six months, six months for asking young men if they would like to put on tefillin. Okay, are, this will you, never it will never pass. But this was actually a it doesn't present matter. For us. That's the mindset. But this and was a present thing, for us, reminding us how these they they can help themselves. They can they help themselves. Care. But and, but and the now, other thing I, is, you know, I, I wanted the Amina voters to see this and remember who you're going to bed with. You're going to bed with these people who want to de judify uh, the, the state. Of Judaize, I think Jude, is the word. Judaize. Oh. oh. Don't worry, it's an anti-Semitic word. But um, but the the I guess we should get used to them because they're going to be dominating the discourse from now on. But these are people who, not to put too sh- you know uh, uh, sharp a point on it, they are are fanatical anti-religious zealots. And the person who's most emblematic of this in this incoming uh, uh, government is Avigdor Lieberman. A Victor Lieberman, who we talked about in the past. I mean, his his you said it, I think, absolutely aptly when you said that it's not clear what he stands for anymore, but that he seems to be pushing an anti-Semitic agenda. And we'll get let me before before you jump in and, and talk about it, I just want our viewers to get this little tidbit of fun news. A Victor Lieberman is supposed to be the Treasury Minister and his party is supposed to be in charge of the Treasury Committee, like the appropriations in the United States, the Treasury Commission Committee in the Knesset, so that Avigdor Lieberman, if this government is sworn in, is going to have complete control over the Israeli economy. And he's pledged to use it to destroy Jewish life as we know it in this country, among other things, right? I mean, he's also incredibly corrupt, and uh, we can expect him to do all kinds of different things with uh, with our with our tax money, which makes me really excited because I'm about to pay, you know, uh, my tax return, and and all of that's going to now be under his control. But um, he he is uh, he is going to be in charge of the national purse, and that's going to have profound implications for religious institutions in this country that are now uh, funded by the state. And also they they demand, they're, they're demanding in their coalition negotiations to also, the same party, Avigdor Lieberman's party, to also have control about the parliamentary committee overseeing the budget. So they're, they're going to be in complete control of this from, from the executive and the legislative branches combined. It's going to be Yippee! wonderful. Um, I, I just tweeted a joke, if I may quote myself, um, saying <laughs> that, that that he is he says he's going to take all the the the, the transfer payment that the Haredim are going to get, but his daughter is famous for receiving inordinate sums from Martin Schlaff, the Austrian billionaire with whom he uh, was in cahoots, and and so my not very funny tweet was that how would it balance so is is what his daughter going to get now more than what the Haredim sector has been getting because he's really I heard Guy Rolnik from the left this is from the radical left it's the market people saying that Avigdor Lieberman is the most corrupt political uh, uh, operator in Israel since he could remember which he said is 30 years 
So this is really scary. And, and people, and, and you know, Lieberman's uh, um, uh, persecution was stopped by a... Prosecution, by the, not prosecution. Prosecution. Prosecution was stopped by the Yoetz Mishpati Is that the... By the, the Attorney General. It's the Attorney General, but also the, the uh, legal advisor the to the government. He, right. he, he wears two hats. And this was after, what, 11 years of investigation and after the investigation of his party ended up with, with a Kitvei Shum indictment. It's indictments. Uh, so, and, so, and he is suddenly, somehow exempt. And, and one of the leading investigative journalists here, Yoval, uh, Yoav Yitzchak, said, look, this, is, this looks suspiciously like uh, a a guy, a, a politician, which is held hostage by the the attorney general's office, because at any moment they can reopen his investigations. Which clearly he he headed the party that is that is under uh, indictment now. I think we should talk a little bit about that. Um, what this means for the legal fraternity, um, you know, Israel has the most powerful. Uh, Supreme Court and the most powerful state prosecution attorney general in the entire world. Um, in the entire world, uh, we are effectively we were one vote away basically from being transformed into a dictatorship of lawyers, if you can imagine, right? Of lawyers. I mean, just think about uh, the old joke. Uh, I think it was Shakespeare that said. Uh, what do you call a hundred lawyers at the bottom of the sea? A good beginning, you know? And so, and so basically we're, we're dredging the bottom of the ocean and we're bringing them back and we're putting them on, on top of everything. Last week or two weeks ago, we had an abomination of a judgment coming out of the Supreme court, which basically just ended any, any, um, any guise of, uh, of seriousness in terms of judicial, uh, uh, judicial uh, limitations on judicial power. Uh, Israel, uh, we don't have a constitution. What we have are a series of basic laws, which we're supposed to just sort of be the undergirding of the party. And um, and so uh, now you know the secret. I'm wearing I'm wearing, a, I'm wearing a, 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 an earphone for the first time. Anyway, but uh, we were the the Supreme Court decided that the basic laws are our constitution. And then they interpreted one of the basic laws that was passed by just sort of a, 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 a sleepy-eyed Knesset that never knew what they were doing uh, in 1992. A quarter uh, they, of the members of the Knesset voted for it. Yeah. And it was a, and it was a small majority uh, over the number of that didn't vote for it. I mean, people just weren't aware of what they were doing. It's called the uh, human dignity, the basic and law. Liberty. Basic law, <laughs> human dignity and liberty. Yeah. Right. And it was a, basically just an anodyne law saying, you know, everybody should be free and everybody is free. And what what happened was that the president of the Supreme Court, a man named Aaron Barak, uh, he he interpreted that as giving the Supreme Court um, the right, the, the power to abrogate laws of the Knesset by based upon his interpretation of what human dignity and human liberty meant. So he gets to decide if there's any abrogation based on that. And then he did other things like he he decided that everything is justiciable and he lowered all standards of standing so that anybody could petition the Supreme Court on anything that they wanted, even though they weren't remotely affected on a personal level by the issue at hand. So he opened the floodgates for 
the radical left to begin petitioning the Supreme Court to legislate uh, policies from the bench. So that was the first aspect of the judicial revolution. And then in 1997, the same year that Princess Di was killed in a car crash, um, we uh, we had a, a concoction of the legal fraternity and the media in Israel where they claimed that uh, the government's appointment to serve as attorney general was, was corrupt. It was the product of a corrupt deal between uh, the prime minister uh, Netanyahu during his first tenure in office and the Minister of the Interior, Arya Derry, who was being uh, uh, he who was under police investigation for a series of al- alleged uh, uh, corrupt uh, practices with donors, and um, so they said that this was a criminal appointment. It worked out uh, that there was no truth whatsoever to the allegations. Of course, this all came out retroactively, you know, in in passing. But by by pushing this conspiracy theory that it was an attorney general in in exchange for a yes vote on a deal that the government was negotiating with the Palestinians from this party and an end to the criminal investigation of this of, of this minister which again none of this was true uh, they were able to seize control over the appointment of the attorney general from the government so the government obviously its attorney general serves at the government's pleasure but in Israel since 1997 that has not been the case in order to uh, be appointed attorney general by the government, uh, first, uh, every candidate for attorney general has to pass through an appointments committee, which is led by none other than a Supreme Court justice. So, And, and it's sort of like the Ayatollahs in, I, in Iran. They're going to have presidential elections next month. And the only people who are allowed to run for president in Iran are people who have received the approval of the Ayatollahs. And so in the coming elections, I think they're next month, uh, the only people who are going to be running are six candidates, every single one of them a greater fanatic than the next. So um, so here, uh, on, the, you know, uh, on the other hand, we have an appointments committee that's controlled by the judiciary. So they are the ones who get to decide who is eligible to serve as the attorney general. And the attorney general, as a result, effectively reports to them. The government is a rubber stamp for this committee, which will put forth, you know, one or two candidates for the government to approve. And and that's it. So you can't even get to the point of being appointed attorney general if you haven't first been approved by the justices. They're the real people who are appointing. And once they did that, they made the attorney general independent of the government that he's supposed to serve. And really at the beck and call of the justices who appoint him. So by doing that, and then since then, just to speed it up, um, the attorney general has seized more and more executive powers from the government by claiming that executive decisions, even before they're made, are unconstitutional. We Again, we don't have a constitutional. It doesn't matter, though. So he's arrogated to himself the decision-making power of the government, and anything that he declares illegal simply not allowed to go forward. He does this also, by the way, he sees control of legislation the same way. When when the we have a government minister's committee on legislation, which is essentially the only way that laws are passed in Israel because you have a, a parliamentary democracy. And so the government is generally the side that has the majority in parliament, in the Knesset. So the ministerial uh, committee on legislation 
is really the primary lawmaking body of, of Israel, as strange as this may seem to anybody, not just to foreigners, to Israelis as well. But once that ha- but but since the attorney general is now in charge of the legality of all government measures, he's also in charge of which bills get to be put forward in the Knesset. So the essentially this 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 uh, two-headed monster of the Supreme Court justices on the one hand and the attorney general on the other uh, now have seized all this government functioning. Now, what was interesting, this was all based upon an interpretation of a basic law. So what they were the, that interpretation was saying, we, the, the Knesset passed this law. Our interpretation of this law gives us the right. Judicial power, review. Yeah. Of power judicial of review. Point, yeah. Exactly. Of judicial review. That was a term that I couldn't think of. Um, they 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 can they can abrogate laws they can cancel laws through judicial review everything was based on basic laws so even so by through that interpretation you're saying the ultimate repository of power in Israel still remains the elected officials and the electorate that that elects them because it's the basic laws so the one thing that the justices until 2 weeks ago never dared to do was question any basic laws cuz that's where their power stems from and last week they canceled the basic law. And so what they're saying now is that this whole election thing, it's just a joke. You know, like this whole Knesset thing, it's nothing. So had we not gotten this government, right, uh, we would have been able to enact some significant legal reform in the country. And in fact, that's sort of become, along with protecting Israel's national security interests in Judea and Samaria and beyond, uh, legal reform has become the flagship issue of the of the right, and so now uh, that's just gone by the wayside. I, just two quick comments for for our viewers and listeners outside Israel is that if you want if you're an American and you want to imagine this, so imagine there is the Warren Court, and that Earl Warren has got hold of the appointments to his own court because they have a veto over their own appointments. So oh, they've just right. cloned Aaron Barak, which is our Earl, Earl Warner, not to say John Marshall, and they've just cloned it. And these are the Meretz people. This is the extreme uh, left wing uh, of our politics, or of, of our political spectrum, is now in control of the court. Now the court has usurped every single um, uh, uh, action of of government, it it instituted itself as as government power as the the as the arbiter of every government decision from legislation to administrative action. And so it's now sort of an over, over government overseer, and there are no checks and no balances against it in Israel's in Israel's uh, constitutional. Uh, structure now. They, they, it's true that now they've they've really struck against the basic law, but they've been maneuvering to do it for a while now because it, it, the right the the action that the right took against the the way that the court has been using this basic law of human liberty and dignity dignity and liberty is that they have been using it to chip away at the national character of the state, and so the right reacted by a basic law calling basic law, national identity of the state. It's not the exact translation. The nation state law. Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. Exactly. So, so, So the law is, so a basic law now supposedly guarantees Israel's character as a Jewish nation state. And what they did under the current chief justice, Esther Chayut, is that 
they accepted for deliberation appeals against basic law, uh, Israel, the nation state of the Jewish people. So they've already signaled that they don't think that this is out of their reach. And she and this is in front of a panel of 11 judges out of 15, which means she is readying herself for a momentous decision. So they have been chipping, and, and now they have a new theory that the actual normative authority over in, 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 in terms of judicial review is not the basic law, but Ekronota Yesod Shel Ashita, the principle, the the, the foundational uh, b- principles of the method, ex- ex- which makes which makes no of sense. the system, but, of the system, right, because but, so the this system is why your Iranian, this is why your right. Iranian analogy is so great, because it's like yeah. the Iranian mullahs. What are it the is. base foundational principles? Nobody knows them. They're not written anywhere. It's not Jefferson's uh, Declaration of Independence. It's not Israel's Declaration of Independence. This is something only professional. Uh, cloaked uh, uh, um, religious judges. Not, I mean, religious... I, I make an well, analogy. Pagan. Fanatical, exact- fanatical pagans uh, <laughs> from, our judicial, from our judicial pantheon of Olympus. They're, yeah, their, and, their religion is, is uh, the religion of law, and only they are, are interpreting the Luchot Abrit, the... Uh, Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments of the foundational principles of the system. They will tell us what it is. What it means is the judiciary has usurped the power to write our constitution no less than that imagine that it's it's unbelievable and unprecedented and no no serious democracy ever attempted such a wild oligarchy system of government so you know we're at 57 minutes and we should probably start wrapping up um but you know i think it's it's important also just to spend the last couple of minutes of our show uh talking about uh, the way forward, because obviously uh, the things that we're describing, both in terms of Iran and the Palestinians and uh, regional affairs, and we didn't even get into Judea and Samaria. We'll have to do that, you know, in another in another uh, show. But uh, and obviously, what we're talking about uh, the democratic character of the state, the Jewish character of the state, all of this is is very much a reason to be completely and utterly freaked out. Right. And and concerned, um, which we all are. Right. I mean, we're, we're I'm surviving on, you know, on, on coffee and, and uh, Tylenol PM. So, you know, it just it, it's very, very distressing. And that was a gross overstatement. But uh, the point, though, is that it's very, very anxiety uh, raising. And the question is, how do we move forward? So there are a couple of things that we have to bear in mind. Um, you know, this is a this is a government that's about to be formed that um, essentially involves political suicide for a lot of the people in the breakaway right-wing groups. Because even uh, assuming that, you know, some of the prognostications that what Bennett is really planning on doing is forming a a new superstructure, a political superstructure, along with your ear Lapid, maybe Benny Gantz and Giron Saar, that's going to be a new fake uh, centrist party, which is really just going to be a leftist party, Um, There are a lot of members of their parties that are in the Knesset today that aren't going to make the cut, right? Because they're going to get, say, in the best uh, case scenario, 40 seats in the next Knesset. Uh, There's not going to be enough room for for all of them under that uh, roof. And so people are going to start thinking about what they want to do next. And do they want to commit political suicide or do they want to 
not commit political suicide. And so a lot of the opportunists that are staying on board this train um, may start thinking about wanting to get off and defect to the Likud or another party or form separate parties so that they can run uh, under under right wing um, awnings in the in in the next elections. That's one aspect of it. Another aspect to it is that um, you know Yair Lapid, who's the head of the Yeshatid party, which is a fake centrist party that's actually just a leftist party, largely controlled by the Biden administration. Um, you know he. He's going to have all the power in this government. He has the largest faction by far in the in the incoming government, and you know uh, um, it, it's it's reasonable to think that while he's happy to use Naftali Bennett, who's supposed to be the prime minister with only six members in his faction, uh, to Yair Lapid's what does he have twenty? Um, that he's not actually going to want to keep this up for much longer. They're about to pass a law that uh, bars Netanyahu from serving again as prime minister by saying that people cannot serve for more than two terms as prime minister. <clears throat> Netanyahu has already served for four, and therefore they're going to bar him from running. And I think um, that you know one of the main drivers of all of this for Yair Lapid is simply to get Netanyahu out of politics. So if they pass that law, there's a very good chance that he's just going to want to bring down this government and go to elections because he'll think that he can win uh, running against a shattered Likud after Netanyahu is, is ousted and barred from running yeah. again. And so that's another thing that, you know, to, there are reasons to believe for one reason or another that this government is not going to be long lived. And in a way, you know, the 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 safest thing for Israel is if we could get a, a small taste of what awaits us early on so that when elections are called, Israelis understand just how dangerous this is. And then we're able to get a clear majority for the right. But it's it's all been an uphill battle because there are so many entrenched political forces and cultural forces and forces in the media that are trying to undermine the will of the voters. Uh, and they've been active and open and in our face every day for the past, you know, two and a half years since the first elections were called out of the last four. Um, that it's, you know, as with all things, you know, freedom is not free. And it's going to be a very hard, uh, hard path to rebuilding what is about to be lost. Uh, but I think we're all in for the long haul. And I hope you'll be staying with us for the long haul as we take you on this miserable journey. And hopefully it won't be Sisyphean, but we'll actually re reach the very top of the mountain and, and restore uh, sanity to this country. As, as Mayor Ariel the great Israeli singer once said. One of my favorite. He died in 1997, yeah. by the way. He, but he had a very famous song. We survived Pharaoh. We'll survive yeah. this too. Exactly. We'll be, we'll be okay, but it's going to take some doing. And we need all of our friends to stay with us and we'll stay with you. And you stay with me and Gadi as we walk <laughs> through this dark time together. And we That was a long promo to just to tell on. you, please subscribe to our channel. Yeah, so please subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> Rumble, YouTube, <laughs> podcast, what have you. Go on my uh, go on my uh, page, my website, carolynglick.com. It's all there, right there, really easy to find and follow and share, 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 share. Let's get this out because it's important. No matter how bad the truth is, it's better than lies.
Hey, that's a good motto, well said. right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's put that on a banner. Okay. All right. Thanks. Take Karen. care. We'll see you next week. next week. Bye, Agari. Bye bye. Bye bye.